0: Good morning,
1: everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 12th, and welcome to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. It's uh, great to have the opportunity every day to welcome back our uh, prestigious and very capable podcast commentators from across the world, and we're really grateful to have them uh, for another season. Uh, Well, let's kick off. uh, Given the news of the day that I just picked up on before we came on air with Neil Atkinson, former head of oil markets at the International Energy Agency. The Financial Times' lead story uh, right now is that uh, Fatty Barol's op-ed in the FT newspaper today calling for peak oil demand uh, peak oil and gas and uh, coal demand will be earlier than expected it's going to be the headline of the world energy outlook which is published next month but as a curtain raiser Neil he's put an op-ed in the FT today that says uh, peak oil uh, coal and the gas demand will be coming earlier than usual before 2030 and then decline I just want to get everybody's reaction to that obviously yours first
2: yeah, sure. Thank you, uh, Sean. I've I got the article up on uh, another screen right next to me here. Uh, I must say I'm a skeptic that that is likely to come uh, about, uh, simply because uh, if you look at the uh, likely trends in demand in developing countries, uh, let, let's not forget that we saw peak oil demand in OECD countries back in 2005 or 2006, something like that. And I think we saw the same for coal, Uh, uh, back then as well. So we've been here before as far as the OECD countries are concerned, but all the action now and for many years to come is in developing countries, which have energy use per capita significantly below that of the Western countries. And those growth pressures from rising incomes in developing countries, rising populations in those developing countries over the next decades suggest to me that uh, unless, by some miracle, developing countries can grow their energy infrastructure almost entirely in climate-friendly ways, they are still going to use a lot of fossil fuels in transportation, uh, the petrochemical sector for consumer goods, and so on and so forth. So I'm skeptical that the peak will come as soon as the IEA suggests, uh, but we'll obviously have to wait and see. And just one quick final point here. This has been... uh, uh, article published today in the FT. It will be very interesting to see what happens tomorrow when the IEA publishes its monthly oil market outlook. Now that's the that's what I call a message from the real world, not a scenario to twenty fifty. And uh, it will be interesting to see if, for example, the IEA oil market report contains an upgrade to current levels of oil demand growth, and possibly through 24, because the further into this decade you get with relatively strong oil demand growth, the less likely it is that the peak is going to happen in 2030 or just before.
1: Let's go to Muscat with Ali Al-Riyami, consultant and former director general of marketing, uh, ministry of energy and minerals in Oman. Ali, the reason I bring this up, obviously, because it's, it is it is a notable statement from the world's uh, main uh, multilateral uh, agency, uh, historically representing consuming countries. But uh, Ali, the the impact of this narrative, which is somewhat ongoing now that uh, the the sort of end of the oil era uh, or the beginning of the end as, as, as Fatih Barol describes it in the FT today does compel oil producers like Oman and Saudi Arabia and all the others to accelerate their production, to maximize revenues now, and so influences policy uh, now, even though, as as Neil points out, we're talking sort of the, the end destination being 2050 or beyond. But the narrative now does compel accelerated value maximizing now. Your thoughts on that?
3: Well, first of all, thank you very much, Sean. And uh, it's always nice to be back. And uh, I hope uh, this uh, new uh, season will be better than last one. And we uh, looking forward to participate with you again and again. Uh, first of all, I think uh, these countries, uh, if they believe, I don't think that uh, these countries, they believe on, uh, on this kind of reports. And I don't think that uh, the peak will be in 2030. So I don't think that there is anything uh, I mean, uh, of, of, of these countries that uh, to do faster or to produce more and uh, to maximize the revenues out of oil, because I don't think that they believe that, uh, you know, the peak, it will be 2030. There, there, there will be a need and demand for oil for the coming, maybe 20 to 30 years coming. So uh, there is uh, some projects we know that everybody knows that uh, there was a delay on uh, so many projects, you know, upstream projects because of COVID, because of other you know, financial issues that uh, everybody faced before. But uh, these, uh, these projects that we are, we are going to see uh, coming uh, on the stream uh, very soon uh, 2027, 20, 2028, 20, and onwards. So it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, they, the countries they want to maximize, it's just to, to keep, uh, you know, uh, the world, uh, uh, to keep uh, the energy for the world enough for, for everybody to use, actually. And this is the, the mind, uh, mindset of uh, of the countries like Saudi Arabia, like uh, Iraq, like Kuwait, the producers, the big producers of uh, of oil and fossil uh, fossil uh, uh, energy. So I don't uh, I I am uh, I am a bit uh, you know uh, worried when when I hear this kind of uh, messages from uh, uh, respectable organizations like uh, IEA, uh, talking about you know the peak in 2030, I mean, what and then happen- the
1: Financial Times puts it on the front page. So yeah, I mean, it but, is uh, a it is a domino. The Financial Times being you need, the-
3: you need you need to debate with them and to ask them what what is next. I mean, uh, what do you think? What will happen after 2030? But well, he's the saying the acceleration peak, and then we start seeing some uh, some uh, you know uh, productions going down or the demand of the world going uh, you know down. I mean, I don't think so because the need of the energy will continue to grow. As long as there is human beings in this world, either fossil, or, you know, energy or renewables or hydrogen, you name it. But uh, you know, this kind of political kind of uh, direction that we have been, you know, dri- driven in. I mean, I don't, I don't uh, really agree with that.
1: Vanda Nahari, founder and CEO of Vanda Insights. Uh, Welcome your thoughts on that, Vanda. Obviously, you're just talking in the green room about the uh, uh, narratives from uh, APEC week last week in Singapore when all of the uh, market end of the industry got together and and w- whether this is featured i certainly spoke to, we've had a few of uh, of the team on the podcast this week saying that uh, there was a you know a very robust view from producers that they were going to hold the line on cuts to maximize oil revenue at this time ultimately this iea type narrative uh, is not new the the peak Narrative is not new, and and we it has triggered, I would think, generally a more robust attitude from OPEC and OPEC Plus that we've seen in recent years. We're we're going to serve our own interests now, not the collective interest. Your thoughts on the op-ed of the FT today, and welcome some of your insights from APEC last week.
0: Yeah, Sean. Well, you you've already uh, summed it up quite nicely yourself. Uh, I, don't I wasn't even it... there. <laughs> <laughs> i do wonder if this is as you mentioned quite rightly this is not new we've heard this before um but as um you know i do wonder if it's in response to uh, the prices um The price rally of recent days and weeks. Uh, I wonder if it is a response to uh, the deeper cuts by Saudi Arabia and the OPEC plus cuts. And I fully concur with my um, two um, fellow speakers here that it is dangerous. I'm I'm smiling, I I don't want to, uh, because I I seriously mean it. This is sending signals, um, as much as we continue to hear from the OPEC plus members that uh, they believe oil and gas will remain very much in demand for a few decades. We do see a sort of urgency in these countries to uh, re- to leave uh, as little of their resources as possible. Uh, what we call stranded resources to use as much as as possible, but at the same time also to maximize the revenue they're getting for as long as, as they're getting it. So I was just scanning the you know the, the first few paragraphs of of this article that you mentioned in the FT. Look. If Mr. Birol had said that perhaps uh, coal is going to be peak uh, peaking this decade, I would have perhaps uh, you know swallowed it. But to say that coal, natural gas, and oil will all peak in the next seven years—I'm sorry—and and nobody in the room um, or in in the um, uh, discussions uh, last week in APEC would have believed either. Um, and uh, you know the the other theme, uh, just going back to last week, was of course the huge uncertainty and unpredictability that is now sown into the markets. Last year was understandable because of the Ukraine invasion and and all the disruption and fear disruption over Russian supply. But now it is um, on the one hand, uh, China, uh, the uncertainty over how Chinese economic recovery and oil demand will pan out. And on the other, uh, the the tightening of the mark of supply by OPEC plus, you know, I personally think just very quickly to, to round this off, Um, Saudi Arabia, and this has been perhaps for me at least the most surprising element of the market uh, so far this year compared to where we were at the beginning, Saudi Arabia has just changed the the market calculus completely. I think nobody had foreseen that they would take such a hawkish uh, turn in strategy.
1: Neil, uh, the outlook of of, of the last week, as we've seen um, the Saudis announced the, the extension of their unilateral Uh, voluntary uh, uh, one million barrel a day cut beyond the OPEC plus cut, which was already of scale. Uh, It was enough to trigger uh, Brent above $90 last week, and it is now holding in that position. Today, we are touching on $91 on Brent. Your thoughts on on. The, the dynamic uh, of supply and demand in the current market uh, uh, pushing the pressures up on on the front month for Brent. Is this a supply story, uh, restricted tightness, or is this is there still a sort of demand in the old dog yet?
2: Well, there's still life in the old dog, that's for sure. I think your survey question should have had yes, no, and maybe, uh, but uh, you know, fair enough. It's not yeah. a criticism. Uh, It's a a combination, isn't it? Because there is still uncertainty about how strong demand growth is, although it is now pretty certain, as we're already well into the second half of the year for data, that uh, demand growth is going to be fairly strong. But it could be, perhaps in the end, even stronger than we currently think. Nobody really knows, because the macroeconomic pressures... From, uh, potentially more interest rate increases, the ongoing woes in China and its property sector and in other parts of their economy. And then on the other side, you've got the, you've got the, uh, the OPEC plus supply cuts, which uh, you've mentioned. Now, they've OPEC plus in a way has done us all a favor by instead of uh, leaving us hanging every single month, waiting to see if they're going to extend it by another month, they've gone the full deal and told us it's going to stay in place until the end of the year. If that is indeed the case, then it's difficult to see how oil prices could slide back significantly from where they are now, that's for sure. But on the other hand, it's also, I think, uh, difficult to see prices soaring significantly higher than they are. So I'm in the the sort of in-betwixt and between camp with uh, I would have voted for maybe uh, with a tendency towards feeling that prices are perhaps likely to settle around this uh, high 80s, $90 a barrel where we are now.
1: Ali, how do you think OPEC, OPEC plus Oman, uh, obviously at the forefront, particularly in the context of China, China demand uh, remains very robust despite the headlines about the weak recovery from China uh, coming out of COVID. We saw last month uh, in August uh, the uh, the, the record-level imports of oil into China, Ali. So even with the headlines and the general narrative of, of, of weak outlook for the Chinese economy, imports remain rather strong. Should Which of those two should OPEC plus be guided by in its forward policy, do you think?
3: I think, uh, you know, someone has to ask uh, why China, they are still buying at this kind of uh, situation. Why they still although that we see some signals from, uh, from China that the economy is not growing, they are facing some difficulties on the, on the housing sector and also in the industry sectors. And still we see that, uh, you know, the demand of oil for China is, 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 is it's tremendous. So I think, uh, you know, uh, although that we have also another, another signal from China, which is, uh, you know, uh, the numbers of uh, electrical cars that they have already in the market at the moment is just growing. So- And
1: exporting.
3: And, and they're exporting yes uh, but uh, the answer for this i think uh, it is more to do with uh, with uh, with uh, with inventories and also uh, storage uh, rather than uh, you know uh, using it at the moment uh, using it now because uh, i don't I don't see where the the you know the the products or the refineries will uh, will uh, will be able to you know to refine all this all of all of this oil and also to get a margin out of this i mean uh, the whole thing, nobody is touching about this. Nobody is asking where this oil is going to. Why the, uh, China is still buying? I mean, uh, I don't know the answer basically. Yeah. So I, I I hope that somebody can answer me and say, you know, there is something happening in China and nobody say, nobody nobody seeing it. But so far, I don't know why they are still buying. Why the economy is not doing very well? The world economy is not really growing as much as uh, everybody was expecting. So basically. Uh, we 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 will have to wait and see until uh, you know end of this year and start, and, and start at, the, at
1: the beginning oh, of oh, next year. Or we we all have to read Vanda insights because that's where all of the information is in terms of the why, the answer to the why, Vanda. Tell us why Vanda uh, China is you know what's happening in this gap, if you like, between the macro eco and and yet imports remain very strong. They are of course exporting a lot of products now into Asia.
0: Yeah, and there was uh, quite a bit. I mean, China, what's happening in China in terms of macroeconomic data and and the divergence, if you will, also between macroeconomic data when it comes to um, uh, factory activity, PMIs and uh, exports, and, and you see uh, oil imports, on the other hand, that was a, you know, it, it dominated conversations in, in APEC. Um, the, we, this year, for the first time, we had the advantage of having Chinese delegates back uh, in Singapore for APEC. If you remember, in 2022, APEC, China was still under very strict uh, zero COVID lockdown. So it was good to get some insights from uh, those delegates as, as well. And look, he, here's the sort of big picture. So yes, Chinese crude imports have been strong. Partly, the numbers have also been strong because China has had access to not two, but three sources of heavily discounted crude. So in addition to Venezuela and Iranian barrels, there's also been Russian discounted barrels. Um, There is a sense that China has probably been stockpiling a bit uh, with the assumption that prices might be higher in the second half, certainly in the the fourth quarter of this year. And so far, it it seems like that was a good calculation on the part of Beijing. So If you look at the first seven months, yes, imports have been quite strong double-digit growth, but it looks like China probably salted away close to 900,000 barrels per day, has has moved into commercial inventories in terms of crude. Refining runs have been pretty high in China. Refining margins have been good. So that's been true in the independent sector, the so-called teapot sector, as well as the state sector. But then, uh, yes, domestic demand has grown. Domestic demand of gasoline has been strong. And I think as we heard from from Victor Yang yesterday on, on your show as well, jet fuel is climbing. Jet fuel is expected to climb much more in the coming months. Um, as uh, China's international routes have be, had so far been restored to only about 50% of where they were in 2019. But uh, especially the China-US routes are being restored very quickly now in, in the coming months. Diesel is very interesting. So diesel demand um, used to be mostly in, in construction and, and industry. Uh, of course, that has not recovered, but it has shifted to, um, to road transport, to, to public transport. To goods transport because e-commerce has just boomed in China uh, during COVID and and that trend continues. So overall, that's the picture. China is exporting more refined products, exactly as you say. So I was just crunching some n- numbers earlier. Chinese refined product exports, on average, have gone above one, just above one million barrels per day in the first seven months of this year, compared to about seven hundred thousand barrels per day uh, average through twenty twenty two. So it's a mix of all. In the coming months, uh, again, what uh, Victor Yang was saying yesterday, uh, that's what I heard uh, this week from uh, other participants uh, during APEC as well, that uh, most likely China will destock as prices are higher uh, in the overseas markets and it has now got a good stockpile of of crude. So uh, we expect crude import uh, perhaps to continue to be high year on year, but the growth is not going to be as strong, not in double digits uh, in the coming months.
1: Let's go to the survey question, uh, which is obviously touching on this subject uh, that uh, we kicked off with. IEA director Fadi Barol has forecast in an op-ed in the FT today that demand for oil, natural gas, and coal will peak before 2030. Do you agree or disagree with him uh, that it will peak uh, in, that demand will peak before 2030? Uh, agree or disagree? Um, Big and bum. Neil, we also had, I mean, as, uh, on this narrative uh, in the, the weekend just past uh, uh, in Paris, the the French Energy Transition Minister Agnès Pannier Runacher, which I completely probably destroyed her name, but nonetheless, she told French radio program uh, that uh, if French, uh, if oil companies don't transform, they will not have no chance of survival. That's a curtain raiser, perhaps, to Fatty Barol's comments today in the FT. But just a culmination of these things. I'm just I'm I'm alert not to the big wheel of time that they all refer to, but to the immediate dynamic that it has on relationships. We've seen the IA and Fatty Barol, who was a regular visitor and attendee to many. Uh, energy and oil conferences here in the Gulf uh, for years has been sort of persona non grata recently and clearly uh, there is a a split there uh, not a lot of love loss in the current climate between the major players of OPEC OPEC plus and the IEA I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are is there consequences of that does that matter your 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 insights
2: Well, I'm not sure it matters that much. Uh, There is no doubt whatsoever that uh, there is a a chilly relationship these days between the IEA and OPEC, Uh, for example. I know that uh, personally. And there's been less visibility on the part of the IEA at some of the big uh, oil dominated uh, conferences that we're used to over the years. But now the IEA is a policy, it's an advisory shop. It's there to advise its member governments. 30 odd of them, whatever the number is now, it doesn't uh, produce any oil. It doesn't own an oil refinery. It doesn't have a wind farm. It's there to advise. And uh, it's, you know, whatever the criticisms we may make about uh, some of the conclusions that the IEA draws, it does do a vital public service in producing vast amounts of data and insight, which uh, is not available in uh, huge quantities in many other places. So it's performing a service. And in fact, the fact that we're giving so much attention to this this morning demonstrates that it has a very prominent role. So, you know, it's not going to. uh, I mean, one
1: of the Neil, one of the sort of general narratives from the uh, oil producers or the hydrocarbon producers is the need for an orderly transition that. They, Sultan al-Jabbar, Jabber, is the, the head of uh, ADNOC and also sure. the prominent role in COP this year, his whole communication to all stakeholders is, yes, this transition, this outlook for the climate is real and challenged, and but we need an orderly, coordinated one in which we all cooperate and are on the same team. The likes well, of today's yeah. op-ed will will make that more difficult, one would think. And if we don't have cooperation, then there's challenge.
2: Well, I I think this concept of an orderly energy transition is for the birds. There are far too many players out there and, and countries out there. There's so much going on. So the idea of some kind of grand centrally planned transition over the Period to 2050 is nonsense. Uh, my ongoing narrative, which uh, I had a brain fade earlier in our, our meeting this morning, where yes. I was about energy use per capita, very simple. Even after 30 years of economic development, China only uses 65% of the energy per capita that the OECD does. In India, it's only 15%, and in Africa, it's only 8%. Now, you tell me that those other countries and other regions uh can grow their energy uh, sectors over the next 20, 30 years without continuing to use uh, massive amounts of fossil fuels. I just don't believe
1: it's certainly every percentage point that uh, they go up and 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 that the oec don't go down is certainly a very large amount of energy consumption ali looking forward into the obviously the fourth quarter uh, the oil price and, and and the tightness in the market looks rather you know you know consolidating above 90 and the outlook looks uh, you know bullish your thoughts uh, looking forward to the end of the year uh, that uh, for the, for the, for that tightness to continue, that backwardation in the market to hold.
3: Um, I think that backgradation will uh, will continue to the end of this year, and that is the intention of OPEC and also the, all all these cuts that we see from uh, from different uh, different countries, like Saudi Arabia and Russia, and also from OPEC Plus. So I think the backwardation will continue. Um, I was uh, I was really surprised at the beginning of this year. To hear some, uh, you know, uh, agencies and also some consultants talking about 110 and 120, uh, you know, dollars per barrel uh, towards the, you know, the fourth quarter of this year, there was no fundamentals to uh, to, to support that. Uh, uh, that time at the beginning of this year, so I don't think that uh, we will uh, we will end the year with the same kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, imagination. Uh, I think uh, you know the price will be between. Uh, 90 to 91, 92 maximum towards this uh, end of this year, uh, because again uh, because of the reasons that we have been talking about uh, from the beginning of, uh, of uh, three months now, uh, from the last three months we've been talking about you know we don't see any growth in China we don't see any uh, any any demand although that the demand is tightening up now because of the cuts and extra cuts that we have seen but uh, still I mean uh, we have to consider also the growth. Uh, the uh, you know the, the world uh, economic growth uh, it, it it is it is not really there. Otherwise the Saudis and the, and the Russians and OPEC in particular, I don't think that they they will allow the world to get into a too much tight uh, you know oil demand unless they see that there is a reason a good reason for for that. And uh, people will talk about you know price there after price and so on and so forth. But that is not a really a, a, a good reason. 80 or 75 or or even uh, uh, eighty-five—it's it's, it's, a—it's a very uh, you know sexy number for 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 the Gulf region here. But so the, to to tell us uh, or somebody to tell uh, you know to tell us that uh, you know OPEC or OPEC class there after uh, uh, you know price and pricing uh, uh, issue—I don't think that uh, that could be the correct uh, the correct answer. But again, we had to be uh, cautious and we need to focus on uh, on the market and uh, and uh, to. To react, you know, accordingly. Uh, I, I like the idea that uh, was uh, to, to monitor the market on a month on, on month on month basis. But uh, unfortunately, surprises the Saudi Arabia. They have surprised us that they have taken decision that they're to continue the cuts until the end of this year. Maybe they have the reason for that. But uh, let's wait and see what uh, what's going to be the the result of that uh, towards end of this year.
1: Bandana, just to wrap up, uh, obviously with the survey result coming out, uh, the 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 weakness. There's a big disagreement in this room. Obviously, Uh, we'll post that on social. Uh, but looking at the rest of Asia, where where you know, the, the marginal demand growth has been for many, many years, and whether uh, we're seeing now serious uh, economic challenge in Korea and Vietnam, manufacturing slowing down quite substantially, while India does remain uh, the sort of outlier, where does the outlook for Asia go into the fourth quarter from an economic growth and, and hence energy demand point of view?
0: Yeah, so one of the interesting um, dynamics in this region to keep an eye on is the effect that Chinese economic momentum has on the rest of Southeast Asia. Now, of course, aside from China and India, we all know that Southeast Asia is the fastest growing economies um, and fast growing oil demand as well uh, from a relatively low base, but but nonetheless uh, a major growth center. And um, it's starting to become apparent now China's uh, struggle to regain economic momentum is um, is now uh, casting a shadow on Southeast Asian economies as well, which is you shouldn't be a surprise. And these economies will continue to struggle as long as Chinese economy struggles as well. I, I frankly, I don't see light at the end of the tunnel for China. Well, at least well into next year. So uh, you know, there's have going we to be reached no- the
1: bottom there yet? Do you think, or is there more economic yeah. uh, downside?
0: G- good question. I think that was asked quite a bit uh, last week as well. The View from China experts and and delegates from China was the answer to that question was yes that it is past the the worst uh, of the economic cycle. I personally think let's let's wait and watch. As I was about to say, there's going to be no big bank stimulus. So there's no easy. There's no silver bullet this time uh, that Beijing has. Uh, so that's that's the scene from. Do they Korea. have
1: it? And they just don't want to use it, or it's it's not there.
0: They do not want to use it, Sean, because uh, debt, uh, especially provincial level debt, is already a huge worry for Beijing. They do not want to add more to that debt. Uh, And the next point, which is that they do not want to create more overcapacity, whether it's in the real estate sector or it's in the industrial sector. This has been true pre-COVID even. So those are some of the sort of big tenets of of that that beijing lives by which are not changing and which have now become major hurdles in terms of it being able to just kind of um um do a, a big bang sort of stimulus in the economy. That's not going to happen. So it's going to be a very, very slow recovery. That's the overall scene. I would just quickly close with the comments that um, I think, and as Ali was saying as well, is that um, we, we started the year with demand worries, and we are sliding into the fourth quarter with supply worries. So <clears throat> the single one major factor that has changed quite dramatically is uh, OPEC plus cuts. But but within that, I would say the additional Saudi cuts. So I don't see a, a major, I really can't see what would pull down prices significantly from where, where we are now. But at the same time, I don't see them going a, a, a major runway beyond 90 either for crude.
1: Well, we will have to wrap it up there with Brent trading uh, just knocking on 91 Dollars a barrel this morning in early Asian trade. Neil Atkinson in Paris, thank you so much for joining us. Vandana Hari in Singapore and Ali al in Muscat. Thank you guys very much for joining us today. We'll catch up every morning, 10.30 UAE time. All the best.